We've got two chapters of Revelation this morning, uh, and Andy is going to read the first one, which is from Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages and kings. Chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, 
and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Good morning. Uh, two winters ago, I cut down a tree in our back garden. It was a large oak tree right at the back. The problem with it was not its size. It wasn't that I'd fallen out of love with it or anything like that, but it didn't fit in my design. It uh, looked great. It looked healthy and fruitful. But the health was only skin deep, or you could say it was only bark deep. Beneath the uh, calm exterior and the woody uh, bark, underneath there was a severe problem. It was a problem that I had to just not lop off a branch here or there. I needed to take it down. So like uh, I thought I'd have a go at I got out my chainsaw, I ascended my ladder, and for 90% of the time, I was absolutely safe. I won't tell you about the 10, but I had to cut it down because not because of its size, not because it didn't fit with the structure. I didn't just need to do a little bit of trimming here and there. It needed to be taken away because it was rotten from the inside out. It was rotten to the core. That's really a, a little way of getting a handle on what's happening in this third vision. From chapters 8 through chapters 11 of the book of Revelation, we've got the third cycle of seven visions that Jesus reveals to John through an angel. Chapter 1 tells us that. And by the time we get to the third cycle, which is chapter 8 through 11, there's an intensification of uh, almost this surreal dream sequence that Jesus is revealing to John. The, uh, the graphic nature of it gets turned up like the temperature of an oven. If it was a, a horror movie, it would be getting more graphic. If it was a dream, it would be getting more vivid. The, uh, the seals have been replaced by trumpets. And these trumpets that we read of in chapters 8 through 9 that we look at in life groups uh, in the coming week, chapters 8 and 9, you see creation being decreated. These, these trumpets that sound in history for words of, and times of celebration and rejoicing can also be used as a, a sign of warning. And in chapters 8 through 9, you've got a warning as the angel of God proclaims the warning of the judgment of God that's coming upon, upon the world of God. 
the uh, the first four trumpets they they signify what's going to happen in creation the trumpets five and six they signify what's going to happen to humanity and to the world what's happening is creation is failing under the weight of sin it's affected everything like a disease and although creation the world looks okay on the outside if you look at it with a squinted eye sin has affected everything all of creation all of nature and as every aspect of humanity and so the trumpets of god sound just as the seals of god reveal the plan of god so do the trumpets of god in chapters eight through nine by the time we get to the end of chapter nine six trumpets have sounded but before the seventh is heard jesus has a lot to say to his church that's the place of chapters 10 to 11 that's where we're going to spend our time this morning as jesus speaks to his churches in in what is commonly recognized as two of the most difficult chapters of revelation so we're going to have fun this morning and you need to put your seatbelt on as we begin to look at chapter 10 where jesus speaks to his church and wants to reveal to them and to us his plan it's the first point jesus wants to reveal to his church and to us his plan we see again a, a mighty angel a mighty angel that's appeared in chapter 5 verse 2 now reappears at the start of chapter 10 this, this angel is absolutely majestic and there are these significant echoes back to chapter 1 where jesus the son of god is revealed in his majesty did you notice from the first few verses of chapter 10 the similarity if you've been journeying through revelation with us here it is you see the clouds of verse one that the clouds are enveloping this huge mighty angel there's the rainbow the symbol of god's covenant promises a bit like a knot in his hanky the covenant promises of god are bound up with this bow that's pointing into the heart of heaven it's the rainbow of god and this the face of this majestic angel shines like the sun and his legs are like pillars of fire, like the, the bronze feet of chapter 1 verse 15. So these cosmic proportions of this mighty angel, because he's got one foot in the sea and one foot on the land. And the imagery is for us to see that this mighty angel is intimately connected to the majesty of God that we saw in chapter 1. He's uh, the representative of God with the attributes of God, who has authority over the land and has authority over the sea. And then we get to his voice. His voice is not like the sound of mighty waters, but it's like the sound verses three and verse four of chapter 10. It's the sound of a roaring lion. This is Aslan in my mind's eye. But John is told by the time we get to verse seven to be patient to listen to what he's got to say, but you need to wait and be patient for the mystery, verse seven, for the mystery of God to be revealed. All these different images, all these different metaphors are being overlaid and into place. Remember the imagery, the symbolism of revelation is not linear. It's not a cat sat on the mat. It's like music. There are different things happening at the same time. And so there's this huge mighty angel but what is the mighty angel, what, what would he have in his hand as a symbol of his great authority? Would it be a mace? Would it be some vast object like a huge sword that would fit his godlike imagery? Notice verse 2 says he has in his hand a tiny scroll. 
Now immediately our mind's eye go back to the scroll that Jesus opened that has seven seals upon it, the title deeds of history, as someone has called it. But that's not the word that's used here. This tiny scroll is actually, it's more like an open pamphlet. It's something that looks so small and must be puny in its description in the hands of this mighty angelic being. It's an open booklet that he has and the angel wants to say to John, I want to show you the plan, but I want to show you the secret as well. I want to show you the plan and the secret. Look at verse 7 with me again. The angel speaks and then the angel says to John, I want to reveal to you the mystery of God. The mystery of God. God's plan is revealed in the mystery of God. And when we hear the word mystery, we might be taken in our mind's eye in completely the wrong direction. I wonder which one of these TV sleuths is your favourite. It might be a Call of Duty or Line of Duty, rather. It might be Miss Marple. It might be Sherlock Holmes. When we think of the word mystery, we think about who done it. We think about a puzzle that needs to be solved or a conundrum that we need to find the answer to, perhaps on a quiz night. But notice what the angel says. The mystery of God will be revealed, verse 7. And this little scroll, this little pamphlet that he has in his hand, down to verse 11, is the message for all peoples, all nations, all languages and all kings. This message is the gospel. Same word is used in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery that is revealed, that will be revealed and is to be told to all kings and queens and languages and nations and people, to rich and to poor, to slave and to free, to everybody. It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the mystery that God has had. The plan of God from eternity past will be unrolled and will be revealed to all peoples. And so the angel is saying, John, this message, this mystery is not to stay on Patmos where you are under house arrest. This mystery is to be shared and you're the one to do it. You're the one to go out and to tell. You're the one to go out and proclaim. But what's the mystery? What's the gospel? Here's the gospel. The gospel is that the Son of God, Jesus, came to earth and triumphed. He triumphed through weakness and through suffering. He won through losing on the cross. He gained everything by giving everything he had away. He overcame your sin and my sin by taking it upon himself on the cross. That's the mystery of God in a nutshell. It's the best news in all the world and it's true. And the angel says to John, that's the mystery. That's the plan of God that is now revealed. The gospel is for Jew and for Gentile, for slave and for for free, for black and for white, for male and for female, female, for young and for old. It's for everybody. But the gospel is a mystery. Because Martin Luther was the one who said it. The reason the gospel is not common sense, the reason why it's a mystery, the reason why it should cause us to wonder is because when you become a Christian, you are at the same time a sinner but you're loved. You're someone who's affirmed and accepted and pardoned and delighted in, and yet you still struggle with the same old sins. It's a mystery. It's so counterintuitive. It works in the opposite way than you would ordinarily think. It goes against the instincts in your heart and the principles by which the world runs and revolves. 
in spite of how bad I am at it, how bad you are, the mistakes you've made, the things you should have done and the things you wish you hadn't done. The gospel says Jesus rescues you by his sheer grace. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite way than the world works. Think of it this way. The law of God, things like the Sermon on the Mount, the message of God, is never called a mystery because it works by the idea that if you live a good life, then it makes perfect sense that God will be pleased with you. It's quid pro quo. You live a good life, God is pleased with you. You live a bad life and God is not pleased with you. That's the way the world works. It's called religion, religion by effort and works, that we work our way up the ladder of approval to God and then and only then, when we meet his standard, will his face shine upon us. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is you're saved by grace. It's a mystery. It's not what you've done. It's what Jesus has achieved. It's not what you do. It's what Christ has done at the cross. And so it's a mystery that we're not saved by our, our effort. We're saved by Jesus's sheer hard work and his grace is showered upon us. And his Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. It's so counterintuitive, not works, not achievement, but grace and approval because of what Jesus has done. It's astonishing wonder. It's love amazing, so divine. There's a depth to it in a way that there never is and never can be in religion because it's based on us. That's not Christianity. It's based on him and what he has done. That's the plan that the angel reveals to John. But notice the secret as we move on. Notice the secret. Verses three to four. There is something very mysterious here. I've read a lot about it this week and everybody disagrees. Did you notice these seven thunders that John sees or hears? And he's tempted to write down what he sees. And the angel says, no, put the lid on your pencil or pen and put it down. Stop writing on your typewriter. Whatever you're tempted to do on the scroll, put your quill away. This is not something to be written down. The plan is to be understood, but there are secret things that only belong to the mind and heart of God. There's so much that you need to understand. There's so much that's been revealed to you. There's the plan of God. We know the gospel. That's part of the plan of God. We know how history will end. That's the revelation of God. We know that Jesus wins. There is much that God has revealed to us, but there are certain things that we don't understand. This is not the only time that the Bible speaks of this. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 4, Paul describes his vision. Vision of heaven rendered and he sees into a glimpse of the goodness and the plan and purposes of God. And he says, he heard things that cannot be told. He heard things that cannot be told. I think that's what's going on here. There are things that are too beyond the comprehension of a human mind and heart. The seven thunders of God and the angel says, don't write them down. They're the secret things of God. There are many things in the world that I don't understand. I read on the BBC website of this lovely family that were involved in a car accident this week. You can see it on the screen. The Power family were travelling down the A40. They're a Christian family and they have four children, including an 18-month-old child that's not shown on the family picture. They were driving down the A40 safely 
and there's a terrible car crash with an articulated lorry. Mum died and so did the eldest of the four children. And so the dad is fighting for his life as well as the 18-month-old child. A terrible atrocity that seems to make no sense from our perspective. How do we make sense of things in our world that don't make any sense to us? Why has God seen fit to call home this lovely Christian lady and her three children? Why did it happen? It's a question that I hope you're asking. Why didn't God rescue those people? Why did he cause that accident to happen? Why do certain things happen in our world and in our lives? Why do certain things not happen in our world and in our lives? Some huge questions that we read on our TV screens and when tragedy happens in our friendship group or in our hearts. When that happens, those secret things that we will never fully understand this side of glory if we're Christians, we need to remind ourselves that there are many things that we do understand. God has revealed to us enough of his plan and his purposes, but the secret things belong to the Lord, and that's not a get-out-of-jail card. God is big enough, and God is good enough for us to trust him with our every question and with our every fear. But that's not where the chapter ends. And it's not to say that we must stop engaging with God and crying out to God. It's to say, how long, O oh Lord, as we saw last week, there's a plan and then there's a secret. But then, as if he's describing an oriental cooking dish, the angel says to John, you need to engage with the sweet and the sour. There's a parable for chapter 10 to end. Look at verses 8 to 11. This strange incidence that uh, really doesn't make any sense. John's role in the vision of Revelation changes. Up until now, he's, he's seen and he's heard. And now the angel said, this mighty angel with the pamphlet in his hand, he stoops down to John and says, now you need to get involved. You need to be just like Ezekiel, who 600 years earlier took a scroll and ate it. It tasted sweet like honey, the most precious thing in the ancient world. But then he got terrible stomach indigestion. And you kind of think, what is going on? Can Revelation get any more odd? Can it get any more weird and strange and abstract? I don't think it can. I think it's quite straightforward in a way. Here's the angel saying, you need to digest this pamphlet. That's the word of God, the plan of God. You need to take it down into your very person. You need to taste its sweetness of the preciousness of the promises of God. But there are some things that you'll revolt and can just, your stomach will have a reaction against. Your heart will think, is that right? Is that true? There are some hard things that you will find very hard literally to digest. It's a, it's a parable. It's a metaphor that John is actually doing. But it's a picture for us that we need to grasp and understand. There is nothing sweeter than the gospel, the good news that Jesus, purely for his good pleasure and for our great need, has ransomed and rescued a people for himself. There's no greater hope for the world than that. There's no greater hope than when you're next to someone who's dying, who's a Christian, that you can say, because it's true truth, I will see you again. That's the gospel, it's the preciousness, it's, it's honey-like, it's sweet. 
the great promises of God paid in eternity past, made real in history, that we will see with our very eye if we're Christians in the future. There's nothing sweeter than that. But then there's a bitter taste to the gospel as well. When we begin to understand the gospel through Christianity explored or through reading the Bible for ourselves, or whether you've had the opportunity to share it with someone, even this week, there's a bitter taste to the gospel when we realise that we do not measure up to God's standards. When we are exposed to our sin and our selfishness, our self-centeredness that is so real and prevalent. When we realise we don't measure up time and again, there's a bitterness to the message of the gospel. It's not just affirmation, there's challenge that we need to change, that we mustn't skip over. As someone who likes DIY, we must not sand down and smooth off the hard edges of the gospel that are too direct and too confrontational to us. Here's the challenge. Have you delighted in the gospel? Have you done what the angel, the mighty angel says to John to, to do? Have you eaten it? I don't mean physically carving up your Bible and shoving it down your throat, but do you delight like the psalmist in the gospel of Jesus? Have you sought by prayer and meditation and time to replace a phone with the Bible, so to speak, and invest time and hard work in the best part of your day, morning, noon or night? Small parts, detailed study, big parts. Have you made it a priority, Christian friend, to eat this book, to delight in it, to not smooth off the hard edges, but ask the Spirit of God to open up to you the Word of God, whether it's a gospel or whether it's a really hard bit like Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11. Gospel is very sweet, but it always brings opposition. And that was the message to Ezekiel 600 years before this book was written, the book of Revelation. It's the message to John 2. As the gospel goes to the nation, verse 11, to kings and languages and people groups, great and small, rich and poor, different backgrounds, there will always be opposition. And that's the unpalatable truth of the call of God on the church of God that we see not in Revelation 10, but in Revelation 11. The call to the church in the first century is no different to the call of the church in the 21st century today. In chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, Jesus places a call onto his church. This nightmare that's about to happen that John is writing to the first century church, this groups of 20, 30 people scattered around Turkey. The temperature of opposition is about to be turned up significantly. More and more Christians will face the mouth of the lions. More and more Christians will face the dilemma to pledge allegiance to Caesar or to stand fast and firm in their faith in Jesus Christ. The nightmare is about to get more real and physical and vivid. But no matter what happens, God's people will be eternally safe and secure. We saw that last week, didn't we? As they were numbered, this vast multitude, this 144,000, the Israel of God, the servants of God, these three images in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 into chapter 7, God's people will be eternally safe and secure. They will be vindicated. But until that day, there will be hardship. And this uh, bittersweet mixture and message is right there in Revelation 11. 
from the numbering of chapter 6 and chapter 7, from the vast multitude that John was shown and was revealed to him, now there's a different image at the beginning of chapter 11. Uh, John is told, go and get your tape measure. It actually says measuring rod, but go and get your measuring rod and, and measure out in this dream sequence, the people of God, it's just like Ezekiel chapter 40 and 41, where Ezekiel measures out the symbolic dwelling place, the symbolic city where God will dwell with his people face to face with the absence of sin for all eternity. And here John is told, go and measure out the people of God. It's, they're perfectly safe and secure in the temple of God. That's how chapter 11 begins. But don't measure out the outer courtyard. That's where those who oppose the people of God and the purposes of God, they will come and oppose, they will come and harm, they will come and literally, it says, trample on the people of God. There's the outer court where God's people will look as if they are vulnerable until the seventh trumpet sounds, until the seventh seal is opened, until the seventh bowl is revealed. And throughout this period of time between Jesus' first coming and his majestic return. God is completely in control, but God's people will be opposed. They are to be his witnesses for a certain period of time, a limited period of time. In chapter 11, there are three ways that this time is shown. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. These three numbers are all representation of the same thing. Do the maths later on. But it's three and a half years, three and a half being half of the perfect amount of time, seven years. And so what John is being told is God's people are safe. Measure out. Don't count. Don't see. Measure out and see how safe and secure. See how counted for are every boy and girl, man and woman that trust Jesus. They're safe eternally, but there will be tribulation. There will be opposition and you're to be my witnesses. That's, that's the next image that John is shown. He sees these two representative heads of the people of God. He sees Moses and he sees Elijah who stood before Pharaoh and stood before the evil Queen Jezebel in Exodus and in two kings. Two mouthpieces for God who stood up for God's people, who were God's witnesses in the face of worldly superpowers and worldly oppositions. These are two people, two representative heads, Moses and Elijah, who have eaten, eaten the scroll of the gospel, eaten the truth of God and the word of God. And they stood up for God in great opposition, in great hardship. They are, verse four, people who, like olive trees, show God's power. They are like lampstands who proclaim God's truth and light. And the image, I think, is quite clear, but very hard to hear. What God wants for his church is for them to understand the plan, for them to see that some secret things belong to God, to, to take God's word and internalise it and to be his witnesses. That's the call of God. And this is nothing new. This theme runs through the whole Bible. I mean, look at Abraham or Moses, look at David or Deborah, look at John or Paul, any one of them. And from the lips of Jesus, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. You will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. My witnesses, literally, that's the word for martyr. 
you will be my witnesses, even unto death, throughout the nations of the known world. I think of Abraham when he met God, when he understood the God of the gospel as he looked forward to Jesus. He was sent out. I will bless you. Get out. Get out of your country. Get out of your comfort zone and go. That's what God always does. Think of Moses at the burning bush. Go to Pharaoh and speak. Be my witnesses. With Aaron, he'll be your mouthpiece. Whenever we come in contact with the God of the Bible, he always draws us in so that we might be sent out. We are sent ones on the mission of God to stand up for Jesus Christ in the East or in the West. It's not just about knowledge of God. Whenever anyone has an intimate encounter with the God of the Bible, we're always propelled out. Propelled out to do what? Propelled out with a fullness of life and heart and mind to live sacrificially for other people. We are sent out not just to live sacrificially, but to tell of the message of Jesus, the, the sacrifice one who was raised to life again. We're sent out to tell of the sweetness of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has reconciled a people to God. Our sin has been dealt with, it's been paid for, but those that will not bow the knee to King Jesus will face him not as saviour, but as judge. That's the message of the gospel. We're to live out. We are martyrs of the gospel and what John is hearing is relevant for every age. Do you realise that there have been more Christian martyrs in the last century than in any other century of Christian history? Do you realise that this morning as we sit in our chairs or our sofas with a mug of tea and coffee on our lap with the Bible in our own language, that there are pastors, the men and women, boys and girls who are locked up simply because they are Christians. They are pastors on death row. There are churches that have been burnt down. There are houses that have been destroyed. Men and women, boys and girls, not in the security of the West, but in the East and the Middle East, who are standing up for Jesus and who will be martyred even today. But the message of revelation that really is a theology for martyrdom in one way, is that God pays attention to those who witness faithfully for him. Jesus is not deaf. He's not ignoring their faithfulness. Jesus hears their pleas and one day there will be justice. In the West we face very different pressures that it's almost hard to engage with the suffering of the church in the East and beyond. Maybe if you stand up for Jesus, if you're a witness for Jesus, you will lose out on a promotion. Maybe you'll lose out on some favour. Maybe you'll lose out with some face in a family gathering. If we stand up for Jesus ethically, if we stand up for Jesus and proclaim the truth of the gospel, it will be costly. Jesus has always said that. But the worst someone can do is to kill a Christian. That's the worst that someone can do. And when a Christian dies, whatever setting that may be in, they share in the suffering and the victory of King Jesus. Jesus will not ignore their pleas. History will not continue in this way indefinitely. That's the message of the book of Revelation and of Revelation chapter 11. At times it may appear that Satan is doing his worst and the church has been stamped out. But in the future, evil will fall over us. Weight will not be able to carry itself. And Jesus, Jesus' victory will be seen afresh. And the 
blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of a fruitful growing church. And we'll be able to look back and see, yes, that suffering was real and bloody and painful. But it was only for a short time in light of eternity. It was only three and a half years. If you visit Oxford, you'll see in the centre of the main thoroughfare of Oxford this sign in the pavement. It's a sign to mark the site where the uh, two Christian leaders, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were burnt at the stake in the 16th century. As the flames licked at their heels, Latimer essentially is said to have said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. Think of uh, China in 1940s, the Boxer Rebellion happened and Christian ministries were driven out of China and it looked as if the devil had done his worst, that he'd won a great victory and that uh, Christ's purposes would have been frustrated. But now as you look in China, you see not the small emblems of a, or the embers of a church that almost was destroyed. You see a church that's growing. So it's counted now in not even millions, but in tens of millions that God's purposes are not thwarted. Now, how can Latimer and Ridley, how can Christians who are leaving the country under fear of death, how can they face death with such courage and fortitude? Because Jesus died on the cross. He took all the wickedness and pain and evil and the wrath of God that was needed because of the justice of God to be meted out on the evil in this world, our rebellion, our turning our back on God. And he took it upon himself. And because of that, when the seventh trumpet sounds, when the end of history will come to realisation and to an appointed end, Jesus will return. And no longer, do you notice at the end of chapter 11, no longer will it be praise to the one who was and is and is to come like chapter 11. Notice verse 17. Latimer, Ridley, Christians throughout every century are looking forward now. They say this, we give thanks to you, Lord, God Almighty, who was and who is. Notice the change, no longer who is to come. Because now they see him as he truly is and he has come and he will come. Friends, as we close, don't insult God with low expectations. Don't insult God by just going to him and saying, this is what I want you to do through my life. This is what I need from you today. It's not treating him as the king who rules and who reigns even over this mighty angelic being of chapter 10. Treat Jesus as king. Treat God as king this morning. Treat the Holy Spirit as to who he is, the third person of the Trinity. And what does that look like? It means by starting to expect what God said will happen in the future by Stopping your worry and trusting God because of who he is by obeying his word that suffering will come even unto death. But by believing in his life giving death, death is no longer to be feared. Where a death is your sting, says Jesus, and so can every Christian.